Life Worth Living podcast with Dr. Foyer. Uh, this podcast is sponsored and presented by Lifesavers Emergency Room. Today we have an amazing um, guest with us. It's um, We have Dr. Iman Hippolyte. Uh, Dr. Iman is a good friend of mine. Uh, she's based in Atlanta, but she um, definitely is uh, known to the Houston community and has practiced for many years in Houston before moving to Atlanta. So I'll let her talk more about that. Um, Dr. Iman Hippolyte, welcome to our podcast. Um, Thank you so much for honoring the invitation to join us today. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Foyer. It is a pleasure always to speak to you, whether it's personally or professionally. And I really appreciate your extending the invitation. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we want everybody to know more about you. What I really love about this podcast is like physician to physician talking about um, areas of health that impact people and just talking sort of in lay terms. A lot of times our physician office visits are so fast and words are thrown around and a lot of times patients walk out, I think a little bit a little bit confused, and I think the setting allows them to feel like they're just at the coffee table with the, with a psychiatrist today, with a, you know a GYN doctor the next day. Just um, so we just want to um, let people know a little bit about you, what your background is, and how you became interested in healthcare, wellness, and um, the field of psychiatry in general. Right. Sure. So um, I'm Dr. Hippolyte, and I am a double board certified psychiatrist, meaning that I received board certification in general psychiatry and child and adolescent psychiatry, and I have over 20 years of experience. I am the founder and owner of Aspira Health and Wellness, and I my practice I created to provide transformational care to professional women of color. And what I mean by that is I offer integrative and, con- and conventional mental health services. So um, that could be natural, al- alternative, holistic interventions, as well as the conventional um, offerings such as therapy, medication management. And I work with women of color to help them heal, prevent, and overcome anxiety, depression, and professional burnout. Um, those areas are near and dear to me. And so in my practice, I partner with my clients to cultivate self-care and self-love skills for a softer, sustainable, more fulfilling way of life. And that comes out of my own experience in in healthcare and in corporate America. And I first became interested in mental health and psychiatry in medical school. And I think it was largely because I am fascinated by the interconnection of mind and body and just like the why behind what people say and do. And, and there's a bit of artistry to psychiatry where there's just as much that is artistic as there is like hard science. And I think that kind of resonates with who I am as a person as well. Well, tell us a little bit about Soft Life uh, MD. Yeah. Different from Aspira Health and Wellness. Sure. So um, so I'm also known as Soft Life MD and at softlife.md is my Instagram handle and it's the name of my blog and Aspira Health and Wellness is my private practice where I provide mental health services online and I offer services in 18 states, one of which is Texas. And um, yeah, and so more information can be found out about Aspira Health and Wellness at drhippolite.com. Soft Life MD is my is my social media platform. It's my Instagram handle, and that's where I provide mental health education and outreach. Because, as you said, a lot of terms are are used and and, and just spoken really quickly by professionals and sometimes even lay people. But there isn't 
really a lot of explanation around what that means, um, how to engage with it, how to use it. And so um, my social media presence through Soft Life MD gives me the opportunity to reach people that may not otherwise be able to access my services. And so at Soft Life MD, I, I speak in practical terms about mental health, um, about work-life balance, about self-love, self-care, healthy boundaries, healthy lifestyle habits. And all of those are facets of the soft life. And so that's where the name comes from. And so a lot of people, again, use these terms, but don't necessarily explain how to demonstrate it or what they mean. So that is what I aim to do. That's amazing. That's awesome. Well, I do I do feel like medication management is very integral to your field in psychiatry. Um, I think that sometimes is a, either a surprise for our patients because they may be looking for therapy versus actual medical care. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about your approach to managing patients uh, with medications and the importance of personalized treatment plans? How do you sort of navigate that for patients? Sure. And, and if you don't mind, I'll start by first talking about psychotherapy because I'm one of like a decreasing number of psychiatrists who actually believes in psychotherapy first for most people. Mm -hmm. um, psychotherapy is an extremely powerful and underutilized um, agent of change and health. And studies have shown that in some cases, therapy can be just as effective, if not more effective than medications for some, not all conditions. And when medications are needed, it's generally that combination of medication plus therapy that has the best outcomes. Now, medications definitely play an invaluable role in mental health care. Um, they can help decrease symptom severity and provide people the margin that they need to actually use the other tools necessary to improve mental health, such as therapy, self-care life skills, and, and healthy lifestyle interventions. And so they are an adjunct. Um, medications are not like magic pills. You know, they do not cure. They do not teach skills. They don't make problems go away. Um, they're part of a solution and not the total. And I, I, find, I think it's really important to educate people and help manage expectations around meds because oftentimes I'll get clients that come in and say, oh, I've tried meds before, you know, um, but they don't work. Well, what was your expectation of them? And what were the other interventions that you had on board to help treat the overall condition as opposed to putting all of that weight just on the medication? And so um, I, I think it's really important that um, you know, we collectively um, manage expectations around meds, provide education around what their role is, um, and, and just be a little bit more thoughtful about, you know, going to prescribe so quickly for them, um, because um, like oftentimes it might come up in an annual visit that you might not see that client in a year, and they're talking mm -hmm. about major life stressors going on, and sometimes the you know, the, the answer to someone struggling with major life stressors isn't really a pill, a pill. Sometimes it might be therapy. Sometimes it might be looking at what's going on in their life that's contributing to what's going, you know, to contributing to their presentation. And so um, I just think it's, it's, it's a very, um, you know, mental health, um, how people experience uh, stress and manage stress. It's so nuanced um, that it's important not to, you know, just kind of focus in on one aspect of mental health, which is medications. And so um, I'm not, I'm definitely not anti-medications. You know, I, I am a psychiatrist, but I, I really have a whole person approach and my treatment planning includes all of those aspects of it. Um, and medications are a part. Okay. That's fabulous. I love how you explain things and break it down. I can tell that this is something that you do 
every day. <laughs> so I know that mental health awareness has grown significantly in recent years. There's just been a lot of light being shown, shown on it um, in the community, in, in the media, in the public. Um, what do you think are some of the most important changes or developments in the field of psychiatry that have contributed to this increased awareness? Or have there been things as far as in the government or lobbying? Like how has it become a little bit more prevalent as far as um, awareness in our society? Yeah, that that's a great question. Um, I mean, mental health awareness is is definitely on the rise, and and I love that. I mean, it's such an interesting time to actually be a psychiatrist, you know, and, and have twenty years in because I've seen how it's evolving. Where it was once taboo to say, you know, to be at brunch and say, yeah, my therapist said, you know, or my right. psychiatrist, right. and now all of a sudden it's just kind of like, oh my god, you don't have a therapist? Like, you don't have a therapist? Like, you know, so. It is, it is very, it's fun. It's a very fun time um, to, you know, to, to have some of that stigma lifted and for it to enter mainstream conversation. It's, 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 it's a lot of fun. Um, and I, I think part of what's led to it is that people are speaking out about their personal experiences with mental health conditions like never before. And um, I believe that uh, one of the you know, the main catalyst behind that is is just people's openness to be vulnerable about it. Um, and I think social media has greatly made that possible. It's given everyone a platform to share. And social media oftentimes gets, um, you know, a negative yeah. uh, stereotype or, or view of it because people oftentimes show um, just just the highlight reels, you know, how well they're doing. And, and, and I think as we've kind of learned to live with social media, people are starting to show different sides of what their life is like. And so I think, um, you know, social media has given people a platform to share, you know, on a more challenging side, I think things like the George Floyd trage tragedy, the impact of gun violence, political chaos, the pandemic, all of those have deeply exposed how emotional vulnerable, emotionally vulnerable, you know, we really are. And it's made it hard for us to kind of keep up the, the facade that we're all good. You know, we, we're not all good. You know, collectively, we're kind of struggling and, and just in need of healing. And so I think uh, mental health is definitely a trending topic. It's going to continue to be a trending topic for a while. Unfortunately, there's still a great shortage, you know, of, of services. And there's still a lot of shame and stigma around it. But I do yeah. think that um, you know, interventions, like they shorten the suicide hotline, you know, from a from a 10 digit number down to 988, three digits that you can call or text. And so um, I just think uh, different advancements in technology um, have have helped. Um, and I think that a healthy dose of technology, you know, is, is, is good. You know, I'm a little concerned about it taking over completely. But um, but but yeah, I, I think I would say social media and people's willingness to just be vulnerable has greatly helped. Definitely, definitely. And I think it also helps when you see people that you respect or or just look up to and you see them being vulnerable. It mm -hmm. makes it more acceptable to share your vulnerability to or it makes you accept yours a little bit more. It makes you less, you know, have uh -huh. self-empathy for yourself when you see other people. Exactly. kind of burying their souls a little bit as well. Um, so I have a, I have a question about terminology. Um, mm -hmm. I scrolled through my feed and actually the first time I heard about gaslighting was on Instagram. Yeah. Um, and just, I mean, I can't think of all the other words, but there are a lot of words that are really kind of, I would say sacred or sort of only heard in the psychotherapy psychiatry space that are now just like common terms in people's everyday 
you know, right. now, um, what, what should we do about when you're hearing those words or you're hearing those words being attached to different people or situations um, and you don't even really know what it means? Like, how should people be filtering all of that? I, I have mixed feelings about that. And I'm not sure where, is it, is it like, is it, it's an evolving kind of dynamic. Um, on one hand, it really warms my heart that people are um, curious about mental health. They're talking about it. And I wouldn't want to take that away, you know. Um, on the other hand, what's that saying? Where, you know, like a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. <laughs> Even the word narcissist, like it's just yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Like everybody just, and I'm like, oh, I didn't know that person was. Yeah. Wow, that one's, he's, you know, and I'm just like, okay. I just don't, I, I'm concerned when people, The I think the one that concerns me the most is when people use mental health diagnoses as adjectives. So um, like, oh my God, you're, you're, you know, she is so bipolar. Yeah, that that's not that that's very inappropriate um, because it, and that's where I kind of like kind of put on my stay on stay in your lane hat because you're not a diagnostician. You know, you're not a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And to describe a behavior by a diagnosis that is stigmatizing, you know, for the people who actually do have the diagnosis. And so I think it's important to stay away from from use of casual use of diagnosis, you know, OCD, like, oh my God, I'm so OCD. Like I wash my hands so many times, da, 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 you know, or I'm so ADHD. It is, those are not adjectives. Like those are actual conditions. And, and, and I think the other danger of that is that people show up in our offices saying that they have bipolar, saying that they have ADHD, saying that they have OCD when they've never seen a clinician before, but it's just um, because it's it's now a mainstream term and they know a little bit about what some of the symptoms are, they, they are now self-diagnosing. And so there's a lot of that going on on TikTok and social media. And I, I, might, I think, um, I guess where I'm landing is I mostly have a problem with it as I'm talking it through. Because <laughs> I'm not a psychiatrist and I'm like, this is not normal. This is not okay. Like these words that we're throwing around, it just doesn't seem it, right. It is. And I think it, it's a reflection of the, the fact that like most people are engaging with mental health, not with psychiatrists and therapists. They're engaging with mental health with, with whether it's, you know, online, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, at, at, in, you know, at church, whether it's, you know, through, um, like they're engaging with mental health in all these other settings, except in the areas that that are most that are, that are, are created with 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 that in mind, and with the providers that have the most expertise to hear about it. Um, and as far as the stigma, what do you think that we as individuals or as a society do to reduce um, stigma? What, what would you say you've done um, with your family or even just your friends in helping reduce stigma um, in your daily life? Yeah, I, I just think being vulnerable and telling the truth is is really important. Um, I I think that um, just sharing what what it's like, you know, just just you know, when when people ask you how are you doing, you know, answering it honestly, yeah. <laughs> you know, just yeah. I can tell you, so I you know, I'm an ER doctor. I walk in the room, I'm like, how are you doing? The answer is fine. I'm like, you're like writhing on the bed. It's okay. Right. It's okay. You're. <laughs> Not good, huh? Like, you know, so I've right. been doing that more where I'm just like, it's okay. Yeah, not so good, huh? You know, like let's yeah. let's say it. Say it's not, it's not a good day. It is a good day. It's not so good today, you know, things like that. Um, um, but yeah, to totally agree with that. Being more honest with our with ourselves and with each other is definitely yeah. plays a huge role in that. Um yes. mm -hmm. 
Uh, how what would you say? I guess in the field of psychiatry, um, is being done to help as a whole to reduce stigma. Are there national organizations or international organizations um, with psychiatrists that are working towards that or lobbying things like that? There are. Yeah, yeah, there there are um, there there are professional organizations. Um, I I think the ones that. As much as I, you know, it kind of hurts my little pride to say this, the ones that are that are making a lot of impact are a lot of the peer-led ones. So they're the, the organizations that are led by people and families and individuals who've been impacted by mental health. And I think that that's just kind of the, the beauty of peer support, where it's speaking about mental health in lay terms, you know, speaking about it from a personal uh, perspective um, as as someone who's coming alongside you and not someone who's like kind of telling you what to do or you know dictating care. And so I think there's just a shift in in healthcare in general around um, reducing some of the the barriers and, and the differentiation you know between um, you know patient uh, clinician, patient doctor and and I think some of that is appropriate. Um, I, I still think that recognizing roles, you know, is still also important, but um, I, I think that the stigma um, as, as the, the, the relationship between clinicians and, 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 and patients improve and, 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 and I think that that greatly, you know, helps uh, reduce the stigma. Um, I also think that, um, you know, it's, 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 it's just time that as just in general, we normalize um, um, seeking out help and, you know, from our loved ones asking for help, um, and, 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 and that we seek out relationships that are meaningful. Um, loneliness is an epidemic. And I think the shame and, and isolation that comes along with it can actually perpetuate, you know, mental illness. And so I think now that we're coming out of the pandemic, it's, it's really important that we put our phones down, you know, and, and start engaging with people in real life or IRL, as they say. And I think as we do that more and more, you know, that will reduce stigma. But there there are a lot of campaigns, you know, whether it's through uh, National Institutes of Health, American Psychiatric Association, even Black Psychiatrists of America, which is an organization centered um, around um, Black and Brown people. Um, there are increasing amounts of, of, of advocacy around services for um, different communities uh, to educate people about how mental health looks different in different communities. And so I think as we're doing more education and outreach that that will continue to decrease the stigma. Yeah, yeah. I do have a question about the whole loneliness thing. What would you say is the reason that there's more, you know, because, and then this is, this is weird, or maybe, maybe not, but, you know, I had two kids, I was at two, and I kept asking, you know, do I want to have one more? It's a lot of work, it's a lot of stress, and, you know, you nearly die, right? And then I was just like, gosh, but then, wouldn't it be nice for them to all? And actually, when I had one, I was like, well, let me have another one so that the second, the first one can have somebody to play with. And, then I, two, and I was like, I have a boy and a girl. Maybe I should have another one so that then they, I just want them to not be alone. Is I think was part of what my thought process was, is that if I have a little more, then they won't be alone. Like, is that, why are we, why is there more of this loneliness, like concern that we all have or are experiencing? Uh, I, I think that there's so is there's so many reasons and it's been evolving over time. You know, as as our culture has changed, um, as as our workplaces have gotten more and more intense, 
Um, they at, and, and more demanding. You know, we're bringing work home like never before. You know, both parents are working outside of homes like never before, and work-life balance has increasingly gotten disrupted. And so I think that people don't have the energy to engage socially the way they used to. Um, life has become expensive. <laughs> you know, oftentimes I just read a recent article about one of the causes of loneliness is related to inflation. So if people don't have the money to go to the, you know, all the cute brunches or to go on the fancy Instagram worthy trips and, you know, all these things, you know, everything's centered around going someplace to purchase something, you know, or to experience something. And, you know, people don't always have the financial means to do that. And so, you know, it can be things like going for a walk, you know, going to get coffee, you know, just I think thinking more creative or having someone over to your home, you know, people don't really have people over at their house anymore. Um, um, you know, so I, I just think the way we connect with one another has changed quite a bit. Um, you know, even and, and technology, you know, plays a big role in that. Um, you know, we text more than we talk on the phone. We talk on the phone more than we, you know, see each other in person. Um, you know, they, yeah, there's there's FaceTime, but it's not quite the same. Um, you know, and, and even like, you know, it used to be, okay, we keep lowering the bar, you know, in person to phone to text. Now it's okay, message me over LinkedIn, message me over yeah. IG. So it's just increasing degrees of separation from other people. Yeah, there's not that much as much of a like desire, a drive. I mean, before, I feel like you would do whatever you needed to to get back home. But yeah. if, you know, but now it's, well, they're paying more here, so I'm going to go there. I don't know if people are factoring that community aspect as being a priority for them to be home or be yeah. close and things like yeah. that. And it's such an asset to have your sister down the street or your cousin or, you know, like, you know, so, but tell me a little bit about what you see as far as mental health disparities. I think sometimes we talk about healthcare and I always feel like, well, there's like, there's healthcare for these people and then is health the people over here see healthcare a little bit different than the people over here you know yeah. the black women see healthcare and maternal like um maternal fetal medicine they have a different experience than maybe white women or um you know hispanic women they have a different and you can see that in the data you can see that in their morbidity their mortality right. like do they right. they bring more over there you know when if right. they're black and having a baby so tell me a little bit of how that um, plays a role, um, like disparities that you see in underserved communities versus um, richer communities, perhaps? I, I mean, I think it is the very fabric of healthcare. And, you know, we, we started off by talking about health disparities, you know, it really became a hot topic, maybe, you know, like 10, 15 years ago. And now, and it's, it's like, before it was just the data, it was like, like, oh, like here are the numbers, you know? So we looked at it kind of distantly, like, like just as data numbers, as opposed to how it's impacting people and lives and, and what that trajectory means. And then I, now, I think now we're getting closer to talking about, well, why is that? Okay, because these studies, the data keeps getting replicated. Like we see it over and over. These are the patterns. So why, why is this happening? And so I, I think 
the why behind it is really, really important. And I mean, I'll just say from my own personal experience, my private practice is spirit. It was intentionally created with, with this in mind. And while I treat, you know, patients of all backgrounds, I started my private practice to, to create a safe space to address one of the most under-recognized and vulnerable populations. And, and that is Black women. Um, Black women historically and to date have largely served as caregivers to their families, their employers, their communities, and during slavery, their owners, but rarely to themselves. And I think that that comes out in the wash, that comes out in our health outcomes. You know, despite socioeconomics, Black women have some of the poorest health outcomes in this country. And I think a large part of that has to do with the levels of implicit bias about Black women in U.S. workplaces and our overarching culture, and even within our Black communities. And, and that creates an overwhelming amount of stress and burden that literally takes a toll on our bodies, not to mention our minds. And so I think when you look at the data, the why behind it, no, I don't know that we're really ready to talk about that why. Um, I, I hope that we are. I encourage that we are, and I'm going to bring it up. <laughs> but I, 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 I don't know that we are ready to do anything about it um, as as a society. And so I really, I created my practice because I think so. It's to take ownership of it, not not complete ownership of it, but to do um, to have some level of control and 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 some level of agency around what happens to our bodies, you know, what happens to us and what our role is and what we can do to help counter that. And so, I mean, you know, terms like allostatic load weathering are starting to come up to explain like the why, like why is it that these stressors, you know, in society that that we overwhelmingly experience, why they're leading to these like the out the health outcomes, and so I think it's something that largely has gone unnoticed and unaddressed. Um, and um, you know, I I am here to kind of stand in the gap and and help Black women, um, you know, not only endure but but to overcome you know some of the, the the challenges that that are unique to us i mean you know so often you know we're looked at as angry or masculine or aggressive or intimidating when in reality you know we're often tired or hurting or traumatized or afraid and uh, we don't have a lot of psychologically safe places where we can go to be vulnerable and to actually talk about what it's like you know to endure and to you know generally generationally have endured and so um, I am here to help, you know, women of color cultivate self-love um, and help create a blueprint for health and to validate their experiences. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, well, tell me, what, what would you say are initiatives or strategies that um, you see being created or that you've been involved in or witnessed that um, are helping to improve that access to mental, mental health care for all individuals? Yeah, um, I I mean that's I, I think um, there are organizations like Therapy for Black Girls. You know there are um, you know a lot of um, mental health clinicians that are increasingly going onto social media. You know a lot of us aren't comfortable with it. I know I'm not, <laughs> but it's it's almost this pull and draw to do it because there aren't many of us and. Um, it's important for people to see and hear from us. And you, you know, I, I can't, it, the, the, it's not realistic for me to be able to see, you know, thousands and thousands of people, 
you know, in, in, in my practice. And so I think, um, you know, I'm seeing a lot more retreats and workshops and books, you know, being written, um, more studies being written, um, even Forbes magazine, you know, writing about, you know, the impact of, you know, like the angry black women stereotype in U.S. work culture. And, you know, looking on LinkedIn, you see more and more people speaking out about it. And so um, I, I think um, just, you know, bringing it to bringing it to light, you know, mm -hmm. because when things are hidden, you know, it's easy to uh, for it's easy for people to kind of manipulate those dynamics. But if we talk about them and when we give language to it, um, we, we even create vocabulary to discuss it. Um, it opens the door uh, for, you know, there to be more more equity um, in, in health outcomes, as well as in, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's oftentimes you look at the health outcomes, but it's important to look upstream to see what what is it that's happening upstream that's that's causing, you know, these 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 health outcomes. What is it? that's happening upstream that's causing the stress. And so I think the fact that we're shining a light on what's happening, you know, whether it's, you know, through, um, you know, public sector interventions or whether it's individual clinicians, you know, whether it's, you know, people themselves who live this. And so now they're telling their story. Um, mm -hmm. It's, it's, I think it has to be a multifaceted approach. Um, I do not think that we can you know, look to, you know, large institutions to necessarily be the answer. You know, I think we need a multifaceted approach. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, let's talk about telehealth. I think um, in the mental health space, um, well, telehealth in general has definitely like changed since COVID, right? But yeah. I mean, my, I think my first appointment with a therapist was over like Zoom or something. And I was just like in bed, you know, got my coffee next to me and I'm like, girl, life is hard, you know, and I didn't have to get up, I had to drive through traffic and, you know, and I, and I, I mean, I was just like, this is amazing. Like I have a therapist, one, and I don't even have to leave my house. So tell me how telehealth has changed your practice or how it's impacted your practice. And what are your, what are your thoughts on it? Is it, do you think it's an asset? Is it good? Is it better to be right there with the psychotherapist or the psychiatrist? Do you, do you need to have them in the office? What are your What's your opinion on all this? Oh, it's 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 varied. It depends on the situation. So I'll, I'll I'll touch on it. But yeah, I'm I'm kind of like an OG when it comes to telemedicine because I started doing it in twenty was it twenty God was it twenty ten it was 2009 or 2010 and I did it for the department of defense and for the military. And oh. I had to go onto an army base and we had like these big, they called them VTC video teleconferencing machines that took up like half of a desk. <laughs> and so it's, it's been so cool to see it evolve to where now they're actually HIPAA compliant platforms that you could just log onto the website. And, you know, you have that, that encryption and the technology to protect confidentiality. And so I, I, um, I really appreciate the role that um, you know, telemedicine and technology has helped to increase access to mental health services. Um, my practice is nearly 100% online. It has allowed me to be to to be like to like to be licensed and see people in 18 states. I could even add on more states if I wanted, and and I I, I love that. Um, and I would say anywhere from intake to scheduling to sharing my screen during sessions to provide mental health education, I leverage technology. And uh, I do love how, you know, digital solutions have allowed me to expand my reach and build my dream practice. But I'm also greatly concerned about, um, 
like about how like some of the it's 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 like tech really has its attention on mental health and um, a lot of venture capitalists back tech firms and corporate healthcare you know they they are they are definitely seeing that that yeah. that's like the immense need for mental health and they are rushing to try to fill that demand and yeah yeah i mean so i just don't think that big tech can replace actual mental health care um actual human interaction and empathy um online mental health services while they greatly increase access in our it's like just a godsend for certain populations, there will always be some populations that need in-person services. And so I'm a little bit concerned about the rush to try to adapt telemedicine for every mental health population when there are some that that need in-person services. So people with, you know, really severe and persistent symptoms, you know, whether that's bipolar, whether that's schizophrenia, whether that's really severe treatment-resistant depression, um, people who have higher acuity I do not think that telemedicine is the solution, you know, to to care for them. We still need to invest in brick and mortar um, mental health uh, services with wraparound services and team based approach. It's not impossible, but it is very difficult to have uh, a team based approach when you are online. Um, it, you know, there, there are definitely, you know, some workarounds to, you know, being able to take care of people who are high acuity. I do not think that that's the setting, you know, that's best. And so I'm concerned about, you know, health, um, health, you know, major health conglomerates and big tech, you know, that have, that are really kind of, they're now the voice of healthcare and, and, you know, physicians, you know, that, you know, other clinicians are, are less so. Um, and so I, I think that with everything moderate, you know, that moderation is 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 the answer. A balanced approach is the answer. Um, I, I don't think that it's um, you know the answer for all people, but I, I love it. I, I do want it to grow, but I want for us to be thoughtful about how we roll it out, how we implement it, and, and who we gear those services to, and that we make sure that we're still expanding services for for other people right. who have different needs. Definitely, definitely. Um, how do you use, so you said your practice is 90% um, virtual, correct? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, 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 it's the far majority is, is, is online. Mm -hmm. Are there yeah. some, like, I guess when you screen them, are there some patients that you'll say, hey, you know, I think you would be better served coming into the, into my clinic. I, I want to see you. Yeah. Yeah. I think goodness of fit is something that's really important. Um, especially in mental health care, um, it's it's really important that you know when you're you know as that that the services that I provide I'm are are a good fit or they will meet um, you know a potential client's needs. So I do tend to screen um, because I don't want to put um, my clients in a position where you know they need more access to me than is feasible, you know, in a in an online setting. So someone who, let's say, is on a medication that can but that has potential physical health um, side effects. And I have to monitor their blood pressure. I have to monitor um, you know, I have to do a physical exam. Um, I have to look at their gait. I have to, you know, look at their eyes, do like a abbreviated neurological exam. I I will I will those those are not the best fit for my practice because you know, I don't want to prescribe, you know, it would not be prudent for me to prescribe medications for uh, that, that I know have a, um, you know, a high risk of side effects that need a closer level of monitoring um, mm -hmm. than what can be done online. Or if someone has a condition 
um, where they are prone to frequent mental health urgencies and need to reach me, you know, 24 seven or, um, you know, they're, they're, you know, I, I'm, I'm a one, you know, pretty much almost a one woman show, at least clinically. And so, um, you know, I, I do practice what I preach. And so I, I don't ever intend to be available 24 seven, you know, I, one person, I tell my patients that they need sleep. I need sleep. And so, you know, I really just try to set expectations early on. And so I am thoughtful about who, you know, I accept and I screen, um, I, I do screen um, um, for people who I think would, you know, whose needs would be met by mine, but I also have created um, uh, an extensive list of resources uh, for, for people so that in the event that they call and reach out and my services are not a good fit for them, I have something to share about where they can find, you know, services that, that may be a better fit for them. So you're a business owner and a provider and a, you know, and a physician, a psychiatrist, uh, how do you, how would you say things are different being a business owner um, than I guess previously in your, uh, I guess, previous role? Uh, how would you say that's changed for, what has changed for you in this transition? Oh, that's a good one. A lot. It's night and day. Um, mm -hmm. I think what I love the most is the autonomy um, that, that I have. Mm -hmm. um, I, I really, um, you know, just that there's so many people who have their hands in, in, and I think we oftentimes forget this in the relationship between patient and doctor, um, you know, and, and I don't think doctors are aware of it, but I don't think that the public is really aware of it. You know, when, when we're thinking, you know, when we're doing an assessment, we're thinking about treatment, you know, we're oftentimes thinking about the, the, the medications or the interventions that their insurance will cover, you know, and it's just like, wow. And, and, you know, Technically, some you know sometimes they're the best, but sometimes they're not the best ones that are available. Mm -hmm. um, but because we know that insurance won't cover it, and the the cost for the client to get it without their insurance is is very expensive, then it's like we don't even you know we 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 don't offer it, or we might offer it, but let them know like uh, you know I don't know if you're going to be able to you know obtain it, and and that bothers me. And and I'm not saying that my approach to medicine is for everyone, I know it's not. It's not feasible for everyone to not, you know, use their insurance and to seek private, you know, private health care. Um, but at this stage, you know, where I have worked as a community mental health medical director, where I have worked in forensic settings, I've worked for the military, um, I have, um, you know, I have treated, um, you know, people with severe psychosocial adversity um, that have been um, you know, with very limited resources, you know, and, 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 and just significant need, you know, I've spent most of my career in community mental health. And, um, and now I'm shifting to a place where I'm, I'm the owner of my, you know, of my own practice. And I, I am, you know, I, I, I am choosing to not to have as few parties in, in, the, in, in, in the room, so to speak with me and my, my patient. And I think my patients greatly appreciate that. Um, you know, I am able to spend more time with them than I am, you know, versus in, in a setting where, you know, I have a corporation that's telling me like the RVUs, you know, what they're defining what productivity looks like for me. They're mm -hmm. defining what um, a good appointment looks like. And the, the they, they're, they're not even physicians, you know, they're, they're not even trained in healthcare. They might have an MBA. And so they're, they're you know, there are these other parties that are so prevalent in most interactions between doctor and patient. And I don't think that, you know, they're there oftentimes to manage care or to reduce cost and to, um, 
Yeah, but you know, they have their, but they're, they're not, um, you know, that, that I, I don't find them to add that much value in, in, in the relationship. I, I think that um, the, the relationship between, you know, patient, doctor, clinician, and client, you know, whatever term you want to use for it, um, I, I think it's sacred, and I try to keep it as pure as possible, um, and that's what I find most fulfilling, you know, at, at, at this stage in my career. I completely agree. Looking to the future, uh, what would you say are your goals and aspirations for the continued growth and impact of Aspira Health and Wellness in the Houston community? Sure. So, I mean, Houston is often called the medical capital of the world, you know, just by the sheer number of, of medical institutions and the research that's done there. Um, you know, and 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 that is wonderful. Um, but, you know, there's still immense shortages of mental health services there, especially for populations of color. So as my practice grows, I, I look forward to expanding my presence in Houston and doing my part to serve uh, particularly communities of color in Houston. Nice. Thank you. Um, well, finally, would you be able to share any message or key takeaways that you'd want to leave us with, um, leave our listeners with regarding the importance of prioritizing healthcare and wellness in their lives? I would love to. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think what I'd like to share is that um, I think most of us are living life in survival mode, you know, we're not that intentional about what we're, you know, what, what our thoughts are moment to moment, you know, um, you know, what is motivating our, our, the decisions we make, you know, we're kind of on autopilot. And I think our workplaces and communities are increasingly stressful and in some cases toxic. You know, burnout is on the rise uh, and many of us are hurting to varying degrees and understandably so. I mean, we've, we've been through a lot individually and collectively, especially in recent years, but I do believe that it's time to heal. You know, I'd love for this to be a call to action for us to um, be intentional about our healing. And so I encourage listeners to seek out the supportive therapists and psychiatrists in your area if rather than thrive like you're finding that you're merely surviving or just kind of struggling or to get through the day or, or numbing yourself to get through the day. And I would encourage people um, to act sooner than later before you're in a crisis, before you can't get out of bed, before you decide to leave your job, um, because reaching out to find a therapist um, at the first signs of mental health um, of, of mental and emotional challenges will go a long way to prevent worsening of symptoms and your quality of life. And so I just encourage people, you know, to, to, to really, you know, just be open to the idea of mental health services um, and, and, and just, and, and to seek out care early. Um, and also, you know, if, if you, you know, if, if anyone ever feels like life is too much or they start having thoughts of not wanting to live anymore, um, I mentioned earlier, there's the crisis lifeline. It's 988. Um, you can call or text that number. You can even reach out anonymously. And there are trained counselors available 24-7 to help. Definitely. Well, Dr. Hippolyte, thank you so much for your time here today. You are just like a well of knowledge. Like you're just I know this is like normal for you, but I'm so impressed. Like this is, you're amazing. Um, can you tell um, our listeners how they can reach you, um, your website, the Instagram, how else we can, we can find you? Sure, sure. So um, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. Um, I really appreciate your creating opportunities to connect um, and, and, and to share with, with other physicians in the community. And I just admire you for your, um, you know, just, just for all that you do in the presence that you have in the community. Um, 
in terms of my practice, um, my uh, is it Aspira Health and Wellness, and my website is drhippolite.com. That's D-R-H-Y-P-O-L-I-T-E.com. And my social media where I provide mental health education is at softlife.md. But thank you so much. I think this is like the best one we've done so far and we'll, and people are going to resonate with it. Tired of waiting at the ER? Lifesavers 24-hour emergency room is your number one ER for pediatric and adult medical care. Staffed by board-certified physicians with absolutely no wait time. Lifesavers 24-hour emergency room is equipped to handle life-threatening conditions quickly. Your emergency or concern is our priority, and we're here when you need us. Now with three convenient Houston locations, open 24-7 to get you feeling better fast. Our Willowbrook area location is located at the intersection of Highway 249 and 1960. Our Heights area location is in the Garden Oaks Shopping Center at 3820 North Shepherd Drive. Our Summerwood area location is located off of Sam Houston Tollway at West Lake Houston Parkway. Lifesavers 24-hour emergency room is your ER for immediate care.